The best of times, live from the KWKH studios in Shreveport, Louisiana. Celebrating age and maturity. Helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The best of times. Your host, Gary Kaligas. Good morning, Architects listeners. I'm Gary Kaligas, the publisher of the Best of Times News, the only news magazine for mature adults in northwest Louisiana. I do thank you for tuning into our show today, also thanking those listening via the Internet at www.kwkhonline.com. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear from internationally known author Steve Barry to discuss his many best-selling novels and his passion for history. It is Saturday, January the 23rd, and we are broadcasting our radio show today from the studios of AM 1130, KWKH, a gap broadcasting radio station here in Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's radio show has been pre-recorded for broadcast, so we will be unable to accept calling questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Remember, if you can, to donate to the American Red Cross who are providing food, water, and supplies to those in need in Haiti. You can call this number, 1-800-733-2767. Again, it's 1-800-733-2767. Our January issue of the Best of Times is available at some of our 528 distribution locations. We hope that you'll enjoy this issue, which discusses change and how to deal with it. Our... 2010 Silver Pages Senior Resource Director is at our printer, and it will be available beginning on or about February 1st of this year. Current subscribers of the Best of Times will be mailed their personal copy of the Silver Pages, while others will be able to pick up their free copy of our 2000 edition Silver Pages Senior Resource Directory at our 528 distribution locations. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana, here on AM 1130 KWKH. Stick around for more of the Best of Times in just a few minutes on the Home of the Legends, AM 1130 KWKH. More of the Best of Times on the Home of the Legends. AM 1130 KWKH with Gary Kaligas. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana. I'm Gary Kaligas. I do thank you for listening to our radio show today and also thank those listening via the Internet at www.kwkhonline.com. I am deeply honored to have on my show today internationally known author and history enthusiast, Steve Barry. All of his novels have been a New York Times bestsellers. He's, he has over 10 million books and prints that have been translated into 41 different languages and sold in over 50 countries throughout the world. He and his, and his wife Elizabeth have uh, started a foundation called History Matters, dedicated to aiding the preservation of our heritage. Steve is a quite busy man, an active man. He still practices law, involved in local politics, travels throughout the world, enjoys, of course, in his leisure time, beach and golf, and uh, still has time to research and write more and more best-selling novels. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining us here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Oh, it's great. One correction, I don't practice law anymore. You don't? Oh. Oh, I, I thought you still practiced No, I uh, gave that up here. Uh, so uh, that's just something I uh, just recently did. Just recently? Yeah. 
Well, in all your travels and all your writings, you had to give up something, right? Well, I had three jobs. I mean, one of them had to go, and so I, I picked the one that I'd been doing the longest. So I decided uh, I wanted to write books, so that's what I'm doing now. Well, well my uh, son's an attorney in Montgomery, Alabama, and I told him about you. He says, wow, Daddy practices law as well as writing books. And he says, wow, he must have a lot of time in his hand and has a lot of associates under him that take care of everything. Seven books while I practiced law, but I actually didn't. I was a one-man firm, and I had uh, four ladies who worked for me, and we did it all. We got it all done. Wow. Well, Steve, before we discuss about you and your novels, I want to mention how I found you, because several of my listeners uh, asked me, have asked me that throughout the week. I've been at various senior functions and other uh, events, and they said, well, how did you come about this, uh, this Steve Barry and his novels? And some people knew you, some people did not, some people knew your novels, but uh, one of our higher institution uh, universities in town is called Centenary College, and they hold an annual book fair each and every year in September. And we get here at the best of times help have helped promote this uh, fundraising event for the past 10 years and, and on our radio show here and in our publications, et cetera. So I attend the event. It's on a Saturday always after my live radio show, and I go there to support and meet and chat with everybody and also buy bookloads of books, of used books and new books and whatever. And so I was stopping at the autograph book section, and, and I, I, my, my eye caught a book there. And uh, I've had several friends around me, and, and they, were, they were looking through them also. And your, your novel, The Romanov Prophecy, just stood out. And I said, well, wow, that's interesting. I like about Russian history and the Romanov family. And so I picked it up. I opened it, and it, you had signed a note. It said, hope you like this one. And it signed your name. It was a signed book. Uh, it didn't have a person's name, interesting. Uh, but it also, in, on, on, in the book, inside, someone had read it and left a little note and says, you will really enjoy this book. Well, that was pretty cool. And I picked it up, and I, I got it, and I took it home and was nonstop reading. My wife got extremely mad at me for, for, for uh, avoiding dinner, avoiding everybody in the family. I was engrossed in your book. And I read the whole thing in a matter of two days with, with, with several interruptions by, you know, family and friends. But uh, I, was, I was captured by you. And, of course, I have read Dan Brown's book. And you were very similar in writing. But I will tell you, I think you're better than I've read all Dan Brown's book before he even did the, the infamous ones and made movies. But you're, you are very uh, wonderful in blending the history and the suspense and captivating the reader like me and putting in, in words that uh, make me want to be back there or want to be part of, part of the plot. That's very sweet of you. Very nice of you to say. Thank you. But, uh, again, that's that's how I found you. And then after that, I purchased and got every one of your books. I haven't finished all of them. But today we're going to talk about one, The Paris Vendetta. But we're going to talk a little bit about other ones uh, to get uh, my readers and my radio listeners out there interested in uh in you and your books in the area, I will tell you uh, several of your books are very hard to come by in our Shreveport and Bossier and surrounding area. Um, the Amber Room is not available anywhere. Um, not even paperback? Not even in paperback. I could not find it anywhere, and I've had some people ask me the same thing when I had it posted, uh, that that your books are, are quite either not available, et cetera, in the area. So uh, some of your new ones, of course, are. And uh, But... Uh, 
since I've sent, uh, you've been advertised, you've been publicized or promoted in this radio show and in our publication, as well as on our website, as well as in our listserv announcements, we've had a tremendous amount of people that have called me and told me that they have picked up your books and found you quite fascinating. So you're getting a fan club in the Shreveport area. Right. So I hope you can come over here. And speaking of that, one of my readers came up to me just a couple of days ago and says, Gary, I saw that you have Steve Berry on your radio show this Saturday. He says, yes, ma'am, I am. And she says, I listen to your show all the time, but I'm going to tell you, he's in Dallas on Wednesday. I said, what? She said, yeah, he's in Dallas on Wednesday. I went to, went to his website, and you were in Dallas, correct? I was there. I did an event last night at a Barnes & Noble there in Dallas, and uh, it's a very nice event And because uh, I'm on tour right now with the uh, Paris Vendetta, and that was part of the tour. I, I'm, I'm home now for a day. And then I have to head off to Stewart, Florida to do an event on Saturday down there. Then we're off to uh, Charleston and then to California. Well, I'm sorry I missed you in Dallas. I would have driven over. It's only 180 miles to go over there. But uh, hopefully in the near future we're going to arrange, you, arrange for you to come here to uh, a local Barnes & Noble or one of our book fairs, et cetera, to come make a presentation and, and to present it. I've never been to Shreveport. Well, we'd love to have you here in our, in our lawyer area. And we'll talk about our city is also known, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, about the movie industry. We have filmed here almost 42 movies in the past uh, three years and more coming each and every year, and hopefully maybe in the near future you have to get movie rights to make one of your movies here because we can depict any place in the world in the Shreveport and Bossier and surrounding area. So how did you get involved in writing? Let's tell our listeners about that. How did you get involved in the writing, being an attorney? Um, well, I was, I had this, I mean, I practiced law for a long time, and I had a little voice in the back of my head that was telling me <laughs> to write novels. I mean, really, not to write novels, but just to write. And every writer has a little voice in the back of their head. I didn't know that at the time, but I know it now after talking to hundreds and hundreds of writers. They all have that little voice in their head that drives them forward. And finally, one day in the summer of 1990, I listened to that voice. And I started writing, but the problem is for me, it took 12 years from the time I wrote my first word to the time I finished, my, to the time I uh, uh, sold my first word. It was a very long process for me, and I wrote eight novels during that time. Five were submitted to New York publishing houses. They were rejected 85 times. Whoa. So it was a very, very long process for me. So so that little voice got you inspired, and but it, but did you take schooling? Did you take any courses to well, learn how to, to, to perfect it? What I did, um, I wrote the first novel, the first manuscript, and it was uh, very long, like 170,000 words, which is incredibly long. I wrote a second manuscript, and I wrote a third manuscript, and they were all pretty bad. And I figured out that writing books is very hard. So I went down to Jacksonville, about an hour away from here, and I would go every Wednesday night to a writer's group. And every Wednesday night I would take my chapter down, and they'd read it out loud, and they would just destroy it. We would just, they, I, was, I learned how to write through the critical process of, of being criticized. And so for six years I went every Wednesday night, and I taught myself. There's no one that can teach you how to write. That's, that's a fallacy that's impossible to teach anyone how to write. But there are people who can help you teach yourself how to write. And I was lucky enough to find that, those folks, and I was able to teach myself uh, how to do it. And, and, and what do you call that constructive criticism? They weren't out to get you. Oh, no, no, no. They, no, they, they were out to help you. Oh, yeah, because everybody has to take their turn up there now. I mean, you just can't sit back and criticize because you're going to have your turn up there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it doesn't work like that. Everybody goes up. And what it is is they want you to be honest with them because – 
you know, they're going through the same misery you're going through, and they want you to be honest with them, and they're honest with you. No, it is not. It's not. Uh, it's very constructive. Now, 75% of what you hear in a writer's group is garbage. <laughs> it really is. Now, 25%, though, is pure gold. And the trick is to try to figure out what's gold and what's not, and it takes time before that happens. It took me about three years before that happened. But one thing I will tell you, persistence. 85 rejections, you're, you are persistent. That's that's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, it, it took... Most people would give up probably after the second or third time rejected, right? I gave up three times. I mean, I really did give up <laughs> about uh, three times during the process, but the little voice drove me back forward each time. It would say, just get back in there now and get to work and get 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 to it. And so that's what I would do because I wanted to be a commercial fiction writer. I wanted to write novels for a New York publishing house and I wanted to write a book a year and I want I wanted to do exactly what I'm doing right now uh and it's the hardest goal there is but I set out to do it and I taught myself how to do it during those 12 years. Wow, but I'm um, did you I'm sure you had support from family, right? Well, I had support from uh at the time my wife at the time was was supportive in that regard because she allowed me the latitude to do that. I, I will say that for she, she was very good at letting me, you know, do what I needed to do, in order to learn. But it, it really didn't interfere much because I wrote in the mornings from around six thirty in the morning to nine, and you know, and I would do it at the office before work started. So it, it rarely interfered with anything. But uh, I had support. She did give me support to to be able to do that. Yes. So tell our listeners where do you get these ideas for writing your books. Well, they come from various places. I mean, the Romanov prophecy came uh, on a tour of the Kremlin. I was walking through the Kremlin. A lady was talking about some things, and the, the novel came to me as she was explaining some things in the Kremlin. The third secret is from my childhood. The, the Amber Room came from listening to a show on the Discovery Channel. You know, <laughs> you, know you just, you, you know, the, the Alexandria link uh, came from an event when a gentleman there pointed me in the direction of Kamal Salibi and his theories on the Bible. So you just never know where these are going to come from, it's the writer's job to be able to identify them and make the most out of them. So uh, we're going to talk about the Paris Vendetta, but where did that where did that idea come from? That one was Napoleon. has been beating around in my head for a long time. <laughs> a long time I wanted to do something with Napoleon. Uh, and I then came across this thing called the Report from Iron Mountain, which was uh, uh, something from the 1960s. And when I got all of that and began to put it together, the, the novel just began to gel together and come together from those two items right there. What about uh, ideas from family members, fans, and friends? Do you get cards and letters and emails and, and blogs? I do. I do get them. I, I don't really do take ideas there. You know, you have to be careful there. People say, well, you stole this and stole <laughs> that, which, which is not true. I, I don't, I've never really gotten an idea from a fan that I've used. I get a lot of people sending me ideas, but I don't ever deal with them. I, I, in fact, the, the young lady, Jessica, who does all of my emails and answers them, she'll, she calls those out, so I never even see them uh, to do. So um, I don't really do that because I don't want anybody to you know, think that I stole anything from anybody. But that night when the gentleman in, gave me the idea about the Alexandria link, he didn't really give me the novel idea. He just said, have you ever heard of Kamal Salibi? He showed me Salibi's books. I was reading Salibi's books, and the novel came to me that way. That was very nice, and I went back, and we gave him a signed copy. We had a little event up there, and, and he was just thrilled to death that he was he was part of the creative process. So do you do your own research? Every bit. 
Every bit of Every it. Every bit. Every bit of it. Yeah, you can't get anyone to do that for you because when I'm doing the research, I mean, I don't even know what I'm looking for at that point till I get in there and look. There's no way in the world that someone else would know what I'm looking for because I'm plotting the book as I'm researching. So I do every bit of that myself. Uh, my, Elizabeth and I go and do all of that, you know, ourselves, and she's she does a lot of photographing, and she keeps me kind of going forward. Sometimes I'll get kind of frustrated or I'll get tired of it, and she'll say, just sit down, let's figure it out. You'll get it. So and, you, you've been there, done that. I was going to explain to my listeners. You, you know, you go to Russia. You, you go yes. to Italy. You go to France, right? Yes, yes. So um, you don't just, you know, do it via the Internet. You actually be, go there and experience it and, and go to those particular places so you can visualize it. And, and I will tell my listeners, in his book, he graphically describes these locations and these particular sites that uh, it helps you when you go visit. I visited some of those uh, locations that you've mentioned in some of your books. So, wow, you do a fantastic job in describing the facility, the facade, the area, etc. Thank you. There's at least one, there's at least one trip her book, um, and they, they sound like glamorous when I tell people all the time, well, we went to Paris for four days to research this novel. It is not walking around in your, you know, your best clothes and, and with your camera, and you, and you just stroll around leisurely looking at everything and say, <laughs> oh, that would be great. Let's go over there and look at that. It, that's not how it works. It was a working tour. Oh, my gosh. We get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. We're on the ground by 7, 7.15. We go solid till around 10 at night. We go from place to place. We're studying, getting written materials, photographs, making notes all over the place. And, and we go to we drop, basically, because I set a limit on it. I, my trips are four days in length. I don't go past four days. That way I'll, I don't, you know, I'll get it done. I'll, it's like a ticking clock that I have to get it done. And it, it's very stressful to get in there, particularly if you don't find what you're looking for. And Charlemagne Pursuit, I was in the cathedral at Aachen for three days, and I wasn't finding it. It wasn't coming. It was getting a little scary. Uh-oh. And finally, well, that... on the about the end of the third day, I found it. I found what I was looking for, and the morning of the fourth day, I was able to put it all together, and all of the things that Cotton Malone discovers in the Charlemagne Pursuit within the cathedral at Aachen, I discovered at the cathedral. Well, that is persistent. Well, let me, let me ask this quick question. In your research, do you find some things that really surprise you? Oh, gosh, yeah, all the time. Oh, totally all the time, because what happens is uh, there's a lot on the ground that you would never find in a book. You just, they're, they're just not there. So every trip is that, yeah. In fact, when I, what I go to look for, I almost never find. I usually find something better. Wow, and, something and better. Something better, yeah, it's something better. Because, see, I do about three months of research before I go on the trip so that I go to certain places that I think might work. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. In Venetian Betrayal, we went to Venice. We went to the island of Torcello, which I had researched. Got off the boat, took one look at it. It was exactly what I was looking for. You know, that was one of those rare times where I found exactly what I was looking for on day one at that moment. Um, do you call out the information, let's, get, let's say, given out by experienced tour guides or would, local yeah. residents in the area that you might interview? I would do that. I, I, I ask a lot of questions to the people at these sites. The, the people at the Cathedral at Aachen got to know me after four days because I, <laughs> I was asking so many questions. They, they like that. They like that you're interested. Uh, in Venice, I hired a professional guide who got me to the uh, chief architect of St. Mark's Cathedral, which helped me figure out how to break into St. Mark's tomb. So that was very helpful to do. I had to hire somebody there to do it. So, 
sometimes you, you do what you got to do to get the information. Most times, though, you can get it by just asking questions. Well, uh, to compliment you again, I'm going to give you a lot of compliments, Steve, is uh, I found your books wonderful. I'm telling my listeners this, that in most of his books, I haven't read all of them yet. I hate to say this, Steve. I haven't read all. But at the end of your book, you explain what's fact and what's fiction. I thought is totally remarkable. Well, I, I wanted. I, I realized that a lot of people are getting their history from this, from books like this. True. So what I did is I, I, I write a writer's note in the back, and it takes me about a week to write that writer's note, which is only about fifteen hundred words. I take a lot. I do it very slow. I go through the entire novel page by page, and I get everything out of there that that I, of history, what I what I tricked, what I changed, what I modified. And I want you to know where I play games with it, and I also want you to know what's true. And one caution to the readers, do not read that first. <laughs> it will give away the entire novel, and you will have it's designed to be read after you're finished. That's why it's in the back. I had a lady write me an email one day and just, just set me down one, just, just laid it on me, because I gave away the whole book in there. And I, I wrote her back and said, well, why did you read it first? I mean, don't do she that. She read from the back end first. I so guess she did. She went and read the writer's note first, which was not good. It's not. It's designed to fill in the gaps. But I will tell you, it helped me, and afterwards, to, to understand more, but also helped me to go look further in, that, in those history items. I really I went and I've researched a lot of them in, in your Paris Vendetta, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, regarding that. Um, one other thing I think it's very important. I did not know this until I went to your website. You need to tell our listeners this. You have written several books, but there is a special order that they should be read in. Is that correct? Not necessarily a special order. If you, The first three books are standalones. Amber Room, The Romanov Prophecy, and The Third Secret are standalone novels. So you can read okay. those, however. The Templar Legacy introduces Cotton Malone. The Alexandria Link is next. The Venetian Betrayal is after that. Then the Charlemagne Pursuit, and now the Paris Vendetta. But you don't have to read them in order. If you read them in order, you'll notice some things. If you don't read them in order, it won't be annoying to you. And I do that on purpose so that people will pick it up in the middle, and they won't feel like they've missed something, and say, "Well, gosh, oh my gosh, I, I hate that when you pick up a series in the middle and they talk about stuff that happened four books ago that." You don't know. So I had to write them where new readers could come in very easily at any point along the way. Well, I read the Paris Vendetta. Then when I heard about it, I went to your website, and it said this This is suggested. I was a little worried. I said, oh, wow, I wish I'd read the other yeah. ones before I read the Paris Vendetta. I did put it in there. I, I put that Q&A. I know what you're referring to, that thing. And I said, what, like I was saying, the best uh, way is you'll notice something. But you won't be annoyed if you haven't. But if you've read them in order, you'll go, oh, I remember that. Yeah, and I remember that. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Well, tell quickly, how did the main character of Cotton Malone originate? Well, I was uh, sitting uh, in a cafe at Hybro Plots, which is the square in Copenhagen, and I was looking out there one evening, and there he was in my head. He just came to me. I said, he's going to live right here. He's going to have a bookshop right over there, and he's going to be a retired Justice Department agent. He's going to... Uh, he's come over here. He now lives here, and this is his home. And uh, on my Facebook page, my Facebook fan page, we've posted some videos that, if the some of your listeners want to look at, we we went over there and videoed some of this, so you can see where his shop is, and you can see the cafe, and you can see some other things there. Those videos are up on my fan page, and he just came to me, and that was a very big deal, by the way, because I had already written thirty thousand words of the Templar Legacy. And he 
he was a different character in that book. <laughs> so I came back home, threw the words away, started over, Whoa. and that's what he became. He became what you now see. Wow, he's remarkable. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word for sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana here on AM 1130 KWKH. Gary's got more of the Best of Times for you coming on the Home of the Legends, AM 1130 KWKH. Now, Leland, no TV until you've cleaned up your room. Aw, Mom. Once upon a time, being a parent was simpler. Today, not so simple. Hey, Crash. Crash! Take out the buds, please. If I find out you've been trying 900s in the halfpipe without your armor, I'm taking away your cell phone. Aw, Mom. Skateboards, roller shoes, mountain bikes, freestyle motocross. When kids play today, they're going faster. And winding up in the trauma center in record numbers. We don't expect kids to stop their extreme sports and start playing Simon Says. But parents, at least make sure your kid wears the right safety gear. It really can save bones and lives. A message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and the Orthopedic Trauma Association. For more information on safety gear, visit orthoinfo.org. Over half a million hip and knee replacement surgeries were performed in 2003. Within 25 years, that number will increase dramatically in the United States as aging baby boomers realize that their joints need replacing. I'm Dr. Jay Mabry of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. How do you know if you're ready for total joint replacement? Lack of sleep or limited activity due to pain and medications which no longer work are some signs. Your general health, weight, age, bone density, bone and joint deformity and stiffness and overall nutrition will be considered before recommending surgery. Teens, young adults, and senior citizens over 95 are not generally recommended for surgery. After considering these factors and more, your doctor will advise you on your readiness for total joint replacement. For more information, go to orthoinfo.org or aahks.org. That's orthoinfo.org or aahks.org. I'm senior I'm in Katie McDonald, your Air Force recruiter in Bossier City. To make your future everything you want it to be, you need all the education and experience you can get. There's one place where you can get both, the United States Air Force. We'll give you high-tech training with hands-on experience and turn it into college credit in the Community College of the Air Force. So serve your country while you serve yourself. I'm senior I'm Katie McDonald. Call me at 742-5151. Nothing but the legends. KWKH. Medicines that contain acetaminophen are safe and effective when used correctly, but if you misuse them, you put yourself at risk for liver damage. So follow directions carefully. To learn more, call 888-INFO-FDA. That's 888-INFO-FDA. More of the best of times on the home of the legends. AM 1130 KWKH with Gary Kaligas. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana. I'm Gary Caligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today and also thanking those listening via the Internet at www.kwkhonline.com. Joining me on my show today is internationally known author and history enthusiast, Steve Barry. All of his novels have been New York Times bestsellers with over 10 million books in print and translated into 41 different languages. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Great to be here. 
Uh, Steve, uh, as I discussed earlier, you and your wife have started a foundation, History Matters. Tell our listeners a little bit about that foundation. Well, we were traveling all over, and we kept noticing historic preservation is really taking a back seat to everything. There's no money for historic preservation at all. I'm talking about buildings, land, documents, statues, you name it. It's all falling apart around the, around the country. There's millions and millions of items. So we came up with our a small little way that we could help. Um, and we created History Matters. And what it is, is I'll give you an example of how it works. We did this in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, with our very first event about three months ago. We just started this thing last May, and we did our first event in uh, September. And Myrtle Beach up there was going to do an oral history project, but they needed to raise some money for equipment, and they had no way to get the money, none whatsoever. So we went up, and I taught writing for three hours. I had a three-hour intense writing seminar for three hours. We had a luncheon where some readers came in. And when we were done, we raised every penny they needed in one morning. Whoa. And, and, yeah, we did everything in one thing. It didn't cost them anything to put it on. All I needed was a room, and they got that donated. And what it is is it's a way to raise money. You bought your way into my seminar with a $100 contribution to the cause. And all of the money goes to the event. I don't charge to go. I don't charge expenses. I don't charge anything. I donate all my time to do that. And it's a way to raise money from a group of people who might not otherwise contribute to historic preservation, writers. But they're willing to contribute to help their craft. True. We now have uh, these uh, set. We have um, seminars scheduled in, in about two weeks. I'm going to do one in Pleasanton, California. Then in March, one in Richmond, Virginia, in May in uh, Arkansas, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And then again in February, I'm going to do it in Jacksonville, Florida, at the Much Ado About Books. So we have four now scheduled for various historic preservation projects in each community. They pick the project. They set it all up. I just come and do the seminar, and it's just a way to raise it. We can't raise hundred grand or fifty grand, but we can raise five, ten, fifteen, twenty grand. Yes, we can. And I wondered, what would that do? Is that any that help? And one of the ladies at one of the places where we're going said, $5,000 will fix the hole in the roof of our historic building here in town. $5,000 will replace the cracked window panes that are letting moisture in, destroying this building. $5,000 will replace the hinges that are falling apart. So there are just a little bit of money can go a long way, and it's our way of trying to help. Well, that is fantastic. And and also that particular money can help save some of those antique books, those rare books that may be lost, stolen, exactly. or, or dilapidated based upon not, not being taken care of. Yeah, right? Richmond, Virginia, that's what it's going to go for. It's going to all benefit the rare book room at the Library of Virginia. And it takes $1,000 roughly to preserve one of those rare books. So we're hoping to get enough money to preserve about 10 or 15 of them. Well, I'm I, uh, I'm excited about that. I'm gonna to talk to you offline. Maybe we can maybe we can bring you in this report in Bozier area and help us and in our cause. We'd we love to do. It. We have various events here. We have an, possibly an upcoming uh, event called Author Author that has a lot of local area potential current authors and future authors. And uh, we've done it for two years, but did not have any writing. Uh, seminars. They were just like presentations by the the, the authors themselves. But you might be a, a fantastic, fantastic. Um, and uh, we have you know several historic sites that are definitely in need of uh, of renovation. Yeah, we and like to do that in conjunction with festivals too. We like to have a History Matters event in conjunction with that because it it helps with the marketing of it. That's the one thing the local uh, sponsor has to do is the marketing to get people to come. 
So if you had something like that, we come in, we could teach. We have a three-hour segment or a five-hour segment. It's very intense, too. We go into very intense craft. It could be a very uh, welcome addition to your festival and raise some good money for your local project. Well, that's where we'll definitely talk offline, right, uh, talk okay. offline about that. Uh, one other question uh, I have, and, and my several of my readers and listeners the best of times wanted me to ask you this question. Will any of your novels become movies? We've had some talk, a lot of talk from producers who have called up and looked at it, but no one has just, you know, has come up and said, I'd like to buy it. You know, there's no one's come with a checkbook. And that's essentially, uh, but they've come with a lot of, of discussion about it. Um, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see if it happens. You know, selling to Hollywood is very difficult. It's not as simple as, as some may think because it ba- it's based on your sales. They want to make sure that you have a huge, in, in already a market created from your books. I'm, I do very well. I'm probably, though, a rung or two below where I need to be for them to be really interested in me. So I'm probably a little early yet, maybe a few more years down the road. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's what happened with Dan Brown, because I read Deception Point and all his other books before he became, you know, sure. big-time famous. But uh, it, you know, his books were great, just like yours were are fantastic. And I just I wish you well in that. I'm, I had several readers were telling me that, uh, readers of the best of times that were telling me that uh, they have read read your books and uh, golly, Gary, that if I, it, it, it pictures I can just see the movie in place. I mean, and we're, and we're going to talk about in a couple of seconds the uh, the Paris Vendetta. That to me would be a perfect movie. I mean, wow, it is truly suspenseful and blends in history and brings in a lot of action and suspense and helicopters and Eiffel Towers and all that other stuff. So, uh, I mean, it is totally awesome. But I want to commend you again for, for History Matters because I think it, it should be promoted not just uh, the current people my age and your age, but other the youngers to have more appreciation of history. And we learn from the past, don't we? That's exactly right. That's why one reason why we started the foundation, to try to encourage that. And the past is very important. And in, like in my novels, it's extremely important because I always find something from the past that's been forgotten that still has great relevance today, and and that's what I do. That's what all of my books do. We, we take something lost and forgotten, like the Library of Alexandria, the Lost Tomb of Alexander the Great, or Charlemagne, and and we find these things, and and finding them today would have great relevance and change things today. And that's my little contribution to try to get people excited about history again. So let, let's let's now talk a little bit about uh, the the book. Uh, Again, I will tell my listeners, and Gary does advocate this, I suggest if you haven't picked up the book, you pick up The Paris Vendetta. It is a fabulous read, easy read, very suspenseful, has a lot of history. I learned a lot from the book. It brought back some things of history that I forgot about, and it made me more appreciative of um, of Napoleon in a way. I mean, there are some people that love him and hate him, but wow, and that's... He's front and center in this story, right? Right in the top. And there's been more books written about him than any other person in history other than Jesus Christ. And I did not know that. I didn't either until I started doing the research on this, and I just came across that. Somebody actually did a study on it of how many books have been written about Napoleon, and it's just tens and tens and tens of thousands of books that have been written about him. He's a, he's a man of immense contradiction. He was supposedly the soldier's general, but he was the first guy to flee the battlefield. You know, I mean, the first guy to leave. You know, he was supposedly a great husband and, you know, respectful of women, but he was the first guy to dump his wife when she couldn't produce an heir for him. You know, he was just a total contradiction in every way. And that's, but yet he rose from nothing to become emperor of Europe, basically. He conquered all of Europe. And if he hadn't have 
if he had stopped, which he what he wanted to do, but it, they wouldn't allow him to do it. But if he'd stopped, he probably would have succeeded. But he was kept in turmoil, and he eventually it was his downfall, and it brought him down. And I was fascinated about the exile on St. Helena, the second exile, because the first exile he escapes and wreaks havoc again. Then they put him in a second <laughs> exile. Why not just kill him? He's done with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, they would, some say, well, he, he would have been a martyr. Well, not really. They could have taken him to St. Helena. He could have died. No one would have ever known that he was dead. But they kept him alive for five years. And what they were doing is they were hoping he would slip up. They were looking for stuff. They were looking for a lot of that lost treasure that he had stolen. Oh, yeah. They were looking for that wealth because it was reported that Napoleon had huge amounts of wealth hidden away. He never in real life slipped up, but in the book, yeah, he makes a, he, he does. And in, in the book, we that's where I, I twisted a little bit. And it's it's interesting to, to find Napoleon's lost cachet because he was probably one of the greatest plunderers of all time. So there'd be a lot out there. A plunderer? I like that word. The yes, plunderer. He was a plunderer. He when he conquered a country, he stripped it clean. He stripped houses. He stripped governments. He stripped treasuries, churches. He is the only man to loot the Vatican, you know, in modern times. Of course, the Visigoths long time looted Rome, but the the Vatican really wasn't there at that point. He was the one, he's really the only man to actually loot the Vatican itself, go in there and strip the the library, strip the museum, strip it all clean. And he did it. And to this day, the Vatican still says, you've still got some of our stuff. (laughs) But do they know where it's at? No, that's the whole point. I mean, the French say, we don't have it. Uh, we don't know what you're talking about. The Vatican says, yeah, you do. You're the only guys that came in here and stole it. And uh, that's why this lost cachet, has, this, this mystery of Napoleon's lost cachet has been around for 200-plus years. We'll be right back with more information. But now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana, here on AM 1130 KWKH. Stick around for more of the Best of Times in just a few minutes on the Home of the Legends. AM 1130, KWKH. More of the best of times on the Home of the Legends. AM 1130, KWKH with Gary Kaligas. Welcome back to our show, The Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana. I'm Gary Kaligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today and also thanking those listening via the Internet at www.kwkhonline.com. Joining me on my show today is internationally known author and history enthusiast Steve Berry, the author of The Paris Vendetta and many other novels that are New York Times bestsellers. And, uh, again, thank you, Steve, for joining us here in the Best of Times Radio Hour. You're, you are fascinating um, in your presentation and in your books. I, as I mentioned earlier to our listeners, I highly recommend that you pick up the Paris Vendetta. Uh, it's available at all the local bookstores throughout the area and, of course, online. And let's, let's mention your website. You have a fabulous website, steveberry.org. It's uh I appreciate that. We put a lot of a lot of work into it to keep it current and keep everything up to date. It is very very didactic. It has a lot of great information and links and information about each and one of his books. And you can also order books online from his website at steveberry b e r r y dot o r g. So Steve, let's continue a little bit of snippet, a little bit of information about about this Paris Vendetta book that I've read and. Oh, it was fascinating. It was a page turner. I, mean, I couldn't put it down. I, I read it in probably a, a day and a half. My wife told me it was 4 o'clock in the morning. She says, get to bed. 
and uh, the first night I started on it. So uh, uh, it, it was I couldn't put it down, but it, it was I, I kept wanting to know more and more. In the prologue, in the beginning of the book, you mentioned that Napoleon visited the Great Pyramid. Did he actually go inside? Well, there's a talk. There's a story about that. There's several stories that were written that he visited once. He actually fought a battle there, so he was at the pyramids. Now, whether he went actually inside, no one actually knows for sure, but there's a persistent story that he entered the pyramid, came out shaken. And I couldn't resist that, so Mm -hmm. I had to use it, so I, I put it in there. I noted in the writer's note what I just said, that there's no concrete evidence that he ever did that. But it's reasonable to assume that he might have. He was fascinated with that whole thing because he brought with him to Egypt 200 scientists. And when he conquered Egypt, his scientists... He brought scientists with him? Yes, he brought 200 uh, scientists, his savants, that were brought with him, and they basically created the science of Egyptology. They created that that whole line of study because that civilization was unknown to Europe prior to Napoleon coming in and doing what he did, and they went in and basically unearthed all of that after he conquered Egypt. So in that regard, Napoleon did something uh, you know, very beneficial for us. But he, but, he, but he also took things from that area. Oh, he stole, oh, yes, he stole like crazy. Again, he's a plunderer. And, uh, <laughs> and in my book, I added in there that he found these papyri that had some information in there that he uses later on in his, uh, as, as some of his political and economic philosophy that becomes relevant today. There's that thing from the past becoming relevant today. Uh, and in your research regarding this, did you get it from other sources? Uh, this the speculation. We don't know it's true or false, but it. But where were those accounts about him I, visiting the pyramid? I read secondary accounts that he had gone in there, uh, of people who served with him. A lot of people who served with Napoleon wrote books later. This is part of why so many books were written about him. And some mentioned this this supposed entry into the pyramid, but what, again, there's no there's no reputable historian who says that happened. But it was just too cool. I had to use it. I mean, you know, <laughs> just I just couldn't let it go. It is cool. I had to make it work, and it and it worked. And that's where I can play games with it as a novelist, you know. And 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 I tell you that I played the game with it. But it's there's where the novel is entertaining. You know, remember the the idea of the book is to entertain you. Informing you is great, but I must entertain you. And you do entertain us. You. And you, you blend that history and that suspense. And uh, let's talk another about a pivotal point. You mentioned the oracle that plays an important role in the Paris Vendetta. Is that real? It, it is a real document. It, was it is real. It is real. It was published in 1822. There's an edition of it out there now. Barnes & Noble Press put an edition of it out a few years ago, and I stumbled across one in a used bookshop. It's a little red hardback book that they printed uh, a few years ago. You can find it online, too. Just type in Napoleon's Oracle, and you can find it. Uh, supposedly, Napoleon was a very superstitious man, and he supposedly used this oracle to predict his life. I played with it a little bit myself, and it is a little spooky sometimes how accurate it can be. And nobody knows for sure if that's the case, that he actually used the oracle. But we do know that it was published shortly after his death, and it is dedicated to Empress Maria, his, his widow, who supposedly gave the manuscript to the publisher to publish it. And you go into great detail about the use of that oracle, which I thought was great. I, lo- I love that you, 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 uh, you, you spend a lot of time in your book. Yeah, I wanted on to that. use that. It was, just, it was pretty neat, and it was interesting to do, and uh, I worked it in, and it worked well with my, my uh, antagonist, Eliza LaRoque, who, 
who also has some superstition uh, like Napoleon, even though she hates Napoleon with a passion, she's more like him than she wants to admit, and that was one way I tied them together. Uh, and the other thing, you caused me and probably others to go pick up that uh, the Book of Fate or the the Oracle book, right? Well, we could, could try it. Yeah, you'll be surprised. I, I, like I said, I did it two or three times. It was amazing how accurate it could be. Uh, and in this particular book, Paris is the, the big focal point, right? Yes, it is the and, lookout. And you spent a lot of time there researching all the various... Uh, aspects in the book uh, in, the, in the Paris Paris scene, correct? Yes, we spent four days. This was an idea going through, uh, finding, uh, scouting out all those locales from morning to night, putting all that together there, and the, to put that story to make it all fit. And so, yes, that's a. Uh, this is a little bit unusual for me. The entire book takes place in one locale. Uh, usually, I have three different locales around the world going on, and they they come together at the end. This time, I have three different storylines, but all taking place, place inside Paris. Right. Yeah. I noticed that everything took place mostly in Paris. Yes, it's uh, a tighter book. The the, the Rommel's, um, Rommel's gold. Rommel's gold, yes. Is that real? That's real. That is real. Yes, there was. Uh, it was extorted from the Tunisian Jews. It was taken across to uh, the Mediterranean and then taken over to Italy, then transported over to Corsica, and it disappeared somewhere off the coast of Corsica. And I stumbled across that one day in research, and I said got to use this because Corsica fits into this book perfectly and Napoleon, Vendetta, the whole thing. And then, so, yes, I, I, I wow. put it together, and that is real. That treasure is missing, and no one has ever seen it since. And and you're blending here old history, current history, This and you talked about it quickly before, the report from Iron Mountain. Tell us a little bit about that document. The greatest literary hoax of all time. That's what Guinness Book of World Records calls it. It was published in 1966. It was a bestseller. It was supposedly a report put together by a group of uh, esteemed uh, sociologists and military men and politicians as a way to say, how do we govern in times of peace? How do we deal in a society without war? It also talks about how war is good and how war is, is beneficial to society and how if you didn't have war, what would happen? It was meant to be satirical, but people took it serious and took it as real. And like I said, it was published and determined and thought to be real it was years later that it was finally revealed to be completely false but when i read it i said this is perfect this is perfect i just made it an ancient egyptian document (laughs) is all i did and switched it around of course in the writer's note there's where it's explained where that all comes from and you can find the report online it's not very long it's about six to ten pages and it is kind of fascinating reading of how war is good um well, we, I got so many things I could ask you. Your financial manipulations is the center of the, in the conspiracy in this Paris vendetta. And and were you aware of the timeliness of this particular plot when you conceived it? No, when I wrote the book, I wrote it about six months before all of that happened in, the, in the world. I had finished the book. The book was done. We were in the final edits when the world financial collapse occurred. And... Uh, you know, I wrote the book in you know, 07 into the early part of 08, and all of that happened after that. And when I was doing the edits, it was kind of spooky. I bet it you was. Know? Yeah, and because my book deals with a, a particular aspect of that, and that is how to profit from chaos. If you can create chaos and control the chaos and predict the chaos, there's a way to profit from it. And these greedy people who are part of the Paris Club have decided to try and experiment to do that, and that's where Cotton Malone gets involved in the whole 
and all that happens over two days in Paris. When I was reading the book, I said to myself, wow, I did not, I couldn't figure out exactly when you wrote it based upon what you told me today. I says, wow, he's got some insight. It was, it was spooky <laughs> when we done because people would think that I wrote it after or during uh-huh. it, but the book was long finished, completely done when all of that began to unfold around the world. And I said, wow, this is pretty amazing that I thought about this because I'd actually plotted that book a year earlier. Okay, I'm going to ask you this. Interesting. Did you did you check with the Oracle? I didn't check with the Oracle on that, though. No, no. <laughs> I checked with a, a few other little things that I knew to be accurate and just to see how it would do. And, and it, it would, could be – it was pretty amazing how the Oracle uh, – the answer to the question was pretty close to reality. Uh-oh. Yeah. It's making me more enthused to go about and get that Oracle probably today. Take a okay. shot at it. So what's next – what's up next for uh, Cotton Malone? Cotton Malone is going to China this year. He's coming out November the 16th in his sixth adventure called The Emperor's Tomb. Ooh. It's a really good story. It's a which, big story. Which emperor? Uh, the first emperor of China, Qin Shi. So we're going to have all kinds of cool stuff in this book. We're going to deal with terracotta warriors. We're going to deal with all kinds of neat stuff in this book uh, and a particular aspect of Chinese history that we may not know a lot about. That I came across, and then I'm writing 2011's book right now. It's going to be Cotton's first domestic adventure. He's going to come home for, <laughs> for an adventure, and we're going to be dealing with something in the United States Constitution that I would wager no, maybe less than one tenth of one percent of Americans know is in there. An interesting little quirk of the Constitution that only a constitutional scholar would be aware of. Most people would say, "I didn't know that was in there." So we're going to be dealing with uh, with that little aspect of it in 2011. And he's not going to spill it here at the best of times. No, so no, we have, no. So, so I have to go research the Constitution to find that little particular. You can find that little thing. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty buried in there. But it, I, I, I discovered it in law school about th- you know 35 years ago, and I, I had it in the back of my head. But one day I'd love to do something with that. And now I'm getting to do it with this uh, with uh, Cotton Malone's 2011 adventure. So it's a very interesting, very interesting when people go, I didn't know that. It's pretty Whoa. amazing. You've got me on pins and needles now. Now I'm going to be researching that, or I'm going to I'm going to have to check your website every day. Maybe there's something on there in the near future about it. But I'm going to definitely pick up those uh, upcoming books. Uh, well, you're going to have to have me back then, and we'll uh, talk all about it. We will. We right. will, Pat. Well, again, thank you, Steve, for joining us here on the Best of Times Radio. It was t- totally fascinating. I look forward to meeting you possibly in the near future, and hopefully you can come to Shreveport, Bossier, and surrounding area and to present your lecture as well as give us all of a wonderful insight about your books and about history and and promoting history matters in our area. I'd love to. Uh, Again, for our listeners, note his website is www.steveberry.org. Thank you again, Steve, for being part of the Best of Times Radio Hour. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana, here on AM 1130 KWKH. Stick around for more of the Best of Times in just a few minutes on the Home of the Legends, AM 1130 KWKH. More of the Best of Times on the Home of the Legends, AM 1130 KWKH with Gary Kaligas. 
Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by Humana. I thank you for listening to today's radio show. Join us next Saturday, January 30th, here on the Best of Times Radio Hour, while I will have officials from the Louisiana Healthcare Review to discuss the many Medicare scams affecting persons in Louisiana, and you will learn ways to report these scams and other scams that are going around throughout our state. We hope that you'll join us same time, same station next week here on AM 1130 KWKH. Please thank our sponsor, Humana, and the other advertisers who make this radio show possible. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of The Best of Times. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to today's radio show. I'm Gary Kaligas, wishing you and yours the best of times today and every day. Have a great day. You've been listening to the best of times on the home of the legends, AM 1130 KWKH. Join us again next Saturday at 9 for the best of times. This is KWKH Report.